Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Alicia Swamy, and Eric Johnson are exposing mold. Today, we have the honor to talk to Dr. Montoya, who is an infectious disease specialist. Dr. Jose Montoya is originally from Barranquilla, Colombia, and completed his medical degree with honors at the Universidad del Val in Cali, Colombia. He trained in internal medicine at Tulane University in New Orleans. Following his residency, he was postdoctoral training at Stanford University in 1990, where he completed a four-year intense fellowship training in infectious diseases under the mentorship of Drs. Jack Remington and Thomas Merrigan. He is currently the co-director of the National Reference Laboratory for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Toxoplasmosis, the Dr. Jack Remington Laboratory for Specialty Diagnostics, where more than 21,000 highly specialized laboratory tests are performed in more than 8,000 patients every year. This specialty diagnostic center is the National Reference CLIA Certified Laboratory for the FDA, NIH, CDC, USDA, and clinicians throughout North America and the world over. Dr. Montoya is also the director of the Art and Science in Medicine and Infectious Diseases Private Practice in the Bay Area. He was Stanford faculty in the Department of Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases and Geographic Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine from 1997 to 2019. During his 29-year tenure at Stanford University, he made and published several observations and discoveries, won numerous teaching awards, and founded the Immunocompromised Host Service 2001 and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Clinical and Research Programs in 2007. He has published 200 articles and book chapters in peer-reviewed journals and books. Dr. Montoya has received 14 school-wide teaching awards at Stanford and Tulane. He initiated, participated in, executed, and led more than 30 clinical trials, Phase 1 and Phase 2. He was elected Fellow of the American College of Physicians in recognition of commitment to the internal medicine community and Fellow of the Infectious Diseases Society of America for having achieved professional excellence in the field of infectious diseases. Dr. Montoya enjoys family life, California hiking trails, cinema, music, literature, art, art museums, and good grapes and wines from the regions of Napa, Argentina, Chile, Spain, and France. Dr. Montoya, welcome to our podcast and thank you for joining. Can you tell us a little bit about being a doctor in infectious disease in these times that we are seeing today in modern society? Thank you, Kelly, Alicia, and Eric uh, for having me here in this forum. I've been in infectious diseases now for 31 years. And you know, our specialty has always had this uh, pendulum that swings one way where we are not needed and then swings the other way where suddenly the specialty is in center stage. And that includes um, very sad times like the HIV pandemic, uh, Ebola, H1N1 in 2009. And now more recently, COVID-19 that literally brought the planet to its knees. Um, and so these are evolving stories and, and very um, tough for hundreds of millions of people worldwide. And the COVID-19 pandemic that could have been, been prevented in many ways uh, has brought suffering, has brought death to uh, millions of people 
all over the planet. And the other consequence that COVID-19 is bringing is these millions of people that are gonna be left with the symptoms of unrefreshing sleep and post-exertional malaise and brain fog and pain. Those are real symptoms due to a real illness. And it's like now the world is witnessing, seeing these patients being born with this disease, what the CFS and ME community saw happening over decades, over 35 years. So I am in a specialty that, you know, in these times, I think it's important that we all work in as a team to address the suffering of so many people. What has always driven me to do infectious diseases is how to see suffering being decreased in one way or the other. I caught in your response that you said that you feel this could have been, this pandemic could have been stopped in many ways. What do you think are some things that could have been implemented to work towards that in a different way than what was implemented? I think that if we go back to that December 8th of 2019, when the first case of this unexplained pneumonia in Wuhan takes place, and then the uh, dissemination of something was happening in Wuhan in December 30 through the International Society of Infectious Diseases. And when the first genetic sequence of the virus is published in January 10th of 2020, and then the warning is made out there that there is a virus that is respiratory, that is not just causing common colds, but is killing people. Lots of the measures that we know start respiratory viruses, like wearing masks, physical distancing, all this could have been in place planet-wide, and we would have been able to literally stop the pandemic. Now, in addition to all these things that we know can stop the spread of the virus, uh, we also have now, uh, for the first time ever in the history of infectious diseases, been able to develop powerful vaccines within one year of that January 10th, when the genetic sequences is, is published. And it's appalling to me, it's really sad to me to see that there is still people that could be vaccinated because the vaccines are available and not being vaccinated. Uh, and in countries like my own country, Colombia, Latin America, or India, where there is this dire need of vaccinating people, the vaccines are not available. We had an interview with a cardiologist from Texas, Dr. McCullough, and he had indicated that there were a number of medications that could be used in the treatment of early COVID. Do you see any medications being implemented in the treatment of early COVID for for those vulnerable people who don't currently have access to a vaccine? With all respect of what a colleague may have mentioned, and I don't mean to uh, contradict any of the medications that uh, he or she may have mentioned, the only medication that we know via clinical trials that has some impact in the virus because it works in the RNA polymerase, which is a key enzyme for the virus to replicate, uh, being that remdesivir, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's relatively a weak drug. It works on the virus, but it's, it's a weak drug. They are also more powerful than remdesivir that worked earlier is the use of monoclonal 
antibodies, usually as a cocktail, usually two monoclonal antibodies like casirivimab, for example, and um, endemimab. Those together form what we call Regeneron. And then there is the other cocktail that probably works less with Bangamibibab. So monoclonal antibodies that they bind the spike protein of the virus, they are known to be effective and can be used earlier. Uh, but the same barriers that these countries, like I mentioned, have to have access to the vaccine are the same barriers for them to have access to these monoclonal antibodies. But being said that, the big picture here is that we have basic public health measures that can be implemented and should be continued. And with the threat of the new variant, the Delta variant, the B1617, there are public health measures that can be implemented. There can be vaccines that can be rolled out at the pace that they need to be rolled out worldwide. And there are they need to do much more research to bring drugs that you could be active before the the, you know, when the vaccine is too late for so many people. Are you seeing that the vaccine is effective with the Delta variant? It's the big question now. And what every vaccine trial has been shown, if you look at the Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, the Sinopharm, Sinovac, AstraZeneca, Sputnik, if you look at all the vaccines, they all have that commonality that they prevent in, 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 in like north of 90% death and hospitalization. And that I think should be what our eyes should be on, preventing death and hospitalizations. And by and large, all these eight vaccines that are quite advanced do that. And so the big question is going to be in places like Israel, uh, UK, where the Delta variant is rising and is apparently behind the rising cases in those places, if they're just cases rising of mild, moderate illness versus are we gonna see the devastation that the wild type of the virus, the original one brought in with deaths and hospitalizations. So the hope is that the Delta variant will not cause death and hospitalizations like the original did because there is some efficacy there. It's very important to remember that the virus can only have certain capacity to evolve, to change and escape the vaccines before it becomes not effective in, in doing things. Because the virus has that spike protein that joins that ACE2 receptor and it needs the temperance receptor. So if it changes too much to evade the vaccines, it will not be effective in getting into the human cells. So there is a peak that these organisms a reach in their chains, and they pay this big price in fitness and, and virulence. Interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Montoya. Thank you again for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And um, I just had questions about safety about the vaccines. There's been some information coming out about, you know, my myocarditis happening, heart inflammation, you know, the nanoparticles that are in these mRNA vaccines are accumulating in women's um, ovaries uh, mm -hmm. and causing infertility, some other issues. There's some data, 80% of women who uh, are pregnant that take the vaccine actually miscarry. Are these accurate um, sources of data or can you maybe speak more to the safety of these vaccines? Sure. One important fact to remember 
messenger RNA vaccines, just to pick up one group, uh, because those are the ones that have shown the greater efficacy. They have been researched way longer than since 2019 when the pandemic um, uh, arrived. Um, they have been actually worked since 1989 by a Hungarian uh, researcher, uh, and, and she did a lot of work, solitary work, when no one pay attention to it. And she's the one who really walked us all along through the process that you could do this marvelous tool where you take a tiny piece of genetic code in the messenger RNA, inject it in the deltoid muscle, and transform that into a protein that then the immune system sees as a vaccine. So that work has been there for years, for decades. Now, the, 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 the challenge with that technology is that it has not found the disease where it could be applied and deployed at a, at a mass scale. And that opportunity presented with the uh, pandemic with SARS-CoV-2. So um, they were able to quickly engineer the code for the spy protein. And, and then it was really an eye-opening findings. Back in November of 2020, when the announcement was made that one of the two leading contenders in the messenger RNA vaccine world had had an efficacy of greater than 95%, you know, as an infectious diseases specialist who has witnessed, and I consider myself now as old in infectious diseases, I thought that has to be looked at with a skepticism. That, that they are having this 95%. But when the second vaccine came, the, the second company and had the same efficacy north of 90%, I thought, and I had emails to prove that I sent to very close uh, friends and in, in, in the science world and, and, and physicians, I said, here we have a way to turn the pandemic. Because you can, you, if you have two, two things, two companies separate saying the same thing, we're using the same technology, you have to believe that something is real there. So the the the, the efficacy, the, the, there is no question that is there. So I, I, I am going to your question. Now on the safety part, th there are all this work of decades where the messenger RNA technology has been used and there have been no signals of concern for safety, but I will address each of the ones that you brought up. And, and the fact is that we have in terms of mass scale use, very short time to declare absolute safety. However, everything so far that we have seen and that is coming out is telling us that the safety concerns are clearly um, outweigh the, 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 the need for the, for the vaccine. In other words, any safety concerns so far do not negate the need to have the vaccine supply. Now let's go one by one and, and, and allow me before I go to the myocarditis, ovaries, infertility, the, um, the technology itself, where you take this tiny thing um, that is uh, genetically engineered and then you put it in lipid uh, fats in, in, in at a nano level. And they need that because otherwise it would be destroyed right upon injection. So that lipid fatty cover is just to get time for the messenger RNA to get inside the cell. It doesn't go to the nucleus, so it doesn't touch the DNA of humans. It just gets into the cytoplasm, 
and it goes to the RNA machinery where proteins are made. So it translates the messenger RNA into proteins. The protein goes from the cytoplasm, from the ribosomes to the Golgi apparatus. It's a little organelle within the cell. And from there, it goes to the surface cell. It is not biologically plausible that having those tiny amounts of nanoparticles of lipids and having that messenger RNA that will cause any safety issue. That, that's from the biological plausibility standpoint. If, you, if we were injecting something into the human DNA and inserting, which is possible with drugs now, let's say with CRISPR, a new technology where you can take cells, cut their DNA and insert new DNA. If we were doing that, that's a different story. And that has lots of ethical concerns behind, but that's not what is being done here. So recently, there have been cases of myocarditis and pericarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle cells and the layer covering the heart, primarily in, in, in males, in young males. And they have um, followed the vaccination, the episode of myocarditis. And this is something that is worthwhile watched and follow carefully. The duty right now out there is that we don't know if there is causality because myocarditis and pericarditis do happen separate from the vaccine um, uh, administration. Uh, usually it's from uh, viruses. The most common cause of myocarditis is viruses like Coxsackie, like enteroviruses. Um, and there are other more rare causes in the bacterial, fungal, and parasitic world. So myocarditis have been seen in cases where the uh, young person has been vaccinated. Um, and so there is that question, did the vaccine trigger that? Uh, so I will say there is a question mark there. My take, and I think is the take of most, is that those safety concerns need to be uh, light. The light needs to be on them, but they do not at this point negate the need um, and, and, the, and, the, and the need to have the vaccine being given. So, um, so that's on the myocarditis side. On the ovary side, and unfortunately, it's uh, something that has been misinterpreted. This is in mice that were given the messenger RNA, and there is a way to light up in which organs they go. So they looked at, they, they, uh, they did autopsies where they look at the brain and the lungs and the heart and the ovaries, every organ. And it's very minimal that goes to the ovaries or nothing. And there has been no cases of infertility. To declare that someone is infertile, you really have to have a time for that. And I think the pandemic being less than two years old, would be impossible to declare someone infertile uh, with a vaccine if there had been not enough time to say that it is truly infertile. So I don't think that we have biological plausibility at this time. And I don't think we have hardcore data that tell us that the vaccine should not be given because of safety concerns. And I want to make sure that, that when I say that, that I'm not taking a stand of is, you know, it's either this way or no way. I'm taking a stand of open dialogue and that that's what we should do when it comes to sensitive topics like this. Rather than demonizing who says something opposite to us, what we should do is have an open forums and conversations where data is exchanged 
science is followed and our best opinions are, are rendered. Sorry for too long for that question. You know, yep. that's a really great point that you make that doctors who have one opinion based on what they've read versus a doctor who has another opinion based on what they've researched and read maybe really should come together and have a, a, a panel discussion. And I'm, and I'm actually, you know, interested in, in wondering if you'd want to do that with us, because I know that we have talked to doctors who are able to articulate the medical research in a more advanced way than I am as a non-medical doctor that have had quite varying opinions based on the research and work that they've done on COVID observations from the beginning. And one doctor in particular comes to mind as a cardiologist who was just recently concerned about a fellow doctor who had heart trouble, who he advised against taking the vaccine because of blood clotting issues. And then of course that patient was immediately had um, an issue with myocarditis. And this, this cardiologist that we're referencing has, has called this rollout of the vaccine one of the biggest failures in, medicine, in modern medicine. And I wish that I was well-versed in all of his papers so that I could hold a discussion that would up to be up to your level, Dr. Montoya. But because I'm not able, I would love to have a panel discussion of just open mind, round table, sharing of the information in a, in a way that only intelligent doctors who have their minds set on the benefit of society as a whole and our medical health would be able to do. Is that something that you'd be open to in the future, Dr. Montoya? Yes, uh, Kili, uh, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that if we, as you laid out, we have the basis of being open-minded, respectful of the other's points of view. Um, and we don't have to make people who disagree with us bad people and the people who agree with us are good people. If we go from that perspective that you just said, you know, I'm coming from an angle where I have read certain uh, sources of information, the other side or other perspectives that have read different uh, articles and, 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 and points of view, I think would be very helpful. I, you know, like in my family, you know, obviously I have a son, I have nieces of the age of the myocarditis uh, group, never hesitated, uh, you know, my wife and I to vaccinate our kid who's in that age group and um, never hesitated to advise my sisters to vaccinate their daughters who are in that age group. So, you know, I understand the concern of the my colleague uh, cardiologist who said not to vaccinate this person. And, and I don't know the details about it, but um, I will be open to something like that, Kelly, because I think the way to move the world forward is via dialogue and and, and listening to, to, to each other it's not closing the ears and then stay with your own position and demonize the other, pers other perspectives. I could not agree with you more, Dr. Montoya. And I think it would really benefit society as a whole to see 
two doctors who are on different sides of understanding based on what they have read in peer-reviewed research journals and studies to really sit down and have an intellectual conversation because I think our media or any media that's discussing this issue is not doing just that, is having two completely different sides of it. And I think it's, it, I think it's causing a sociological divide where part of this seems to have been unintentionally or intentionally weaponized where it seems like it's emotional trigger, hot button topic where people get a little bit defensive talking about it on one side or the other. And I think, I think a balanced conversation would be just what the doctor ordered, pun intended. <laughs> I'll follow doctor's recommendations, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Montoya. I just wanted to ask you, um, from the information that you have been looking into, would you be willing to share that with us in our audience just to, to have that, um, that data and information that you were referencing? Sure. Awesome. Yes. Wonderful. That'd be great. And um, I just had a question on um, uh, the CDC VAERS system, which, um, you know, records all of the safety incidences that have happened with the vaccine. So it seems like the numbers currently are 6,000 people have died from the vaccine. 20,000 have been injured. Some believe that this is actually underreporting, that we don't really know um, the information. Also, we don't know if more detailed information into that, like if a person has had COVID and are they now immune because they have built uh, antibody defenses. In your history of vaccines and, and knowledge on that, um, what is the threshold that a vaccine has to hit in terms of adverse events in order for it to be called into question and maybe stopped and looked at a little bit more carefully? Well, you know, I, I would have to um, review again the the data that you just mentioned, so forgive me for, um, you know, uh, um, I, 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 I believe you, obviously, but, uh, but I just want to say that by not saying about the data that you just presented, that I will need to, to, to do my own uh, uh, update about the, the numbers that have been in your following the vaccine and numbers who have died following the vaccine. It, so it is, um, it is an equilibrium that, that we basically have to achieve with any intervention where we that is intended to help, um, and let's stay on the medical on the medical part. So, if we uh, take antibiotics, um, the world was living to be only forty six years of age. The life expectancy at the end of the eighteen hundreds was forty six, because people will die of tuberculosis, typhoid fever babies will very, you know, very, a lot of them will die before one year of age because they would have infection. Then in 1941, penicillin is discovered. And then, and partly because of, of World War uh, II, they need to have these injured soldiers attended and infected. And that brought massive work into antibiotics. And we take antibiotics now for granted. And when people get sick, they rush and antibiotics do save lives. In my experience as an infectious diseases specialist, I have witnessed firsthand patients who would have died, they, they should have not, they have an antibiotic given to them. Patient with pneumococcus in their brain causing meningitis, 70, 90, 100% will die if they don't get the antibiotic. 
if they get the antibiotic, 30% die. So still 30% die, even with the antibiotic. Did the antibiotic cause the death of that 30%, but it saved the 70 other percent? And the other thing that is more pertinent to your point, antibiotics can cause something terrible, and it's called Clostridium difficile colitis. And that's the collateral damage that comes from using antibiotics, where we try to fix a problem. And the tool that we use to fix the problem, in this case, the antibiotic, causes a second problem that can even kill the person. Yet, we as a society have as, has, has accepted that if we use antibiotics as a way to save lives, antibiotics can bring death. And there are allergic reactions to antibiotics that cause death. So that you have an intervention that is intended to help people and that causes, brings a collateral damage is something that is impossible not to take and not to accept. And that's not different with the vaccine world. Hand sanitation and hygiene along vaccination has been the two most powerful man-made tools that have decreased death from infection. Um, and, and vaccines are in that, in that conquer, in that gain, but they do have issues also of lateral damage. I don't think that we are certain right now, but we need to have an eye on that through virus and other systems that, that we know exactly what is the damage that the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines bring but it's very clear that every place where the vaccines are brought in, the cases drop and the deaths and the hospitalizations drop. That's well known. And what price are we paying health-wise with these vaccines? We need to have an eye on that. And I will be disappointed if it's proven that the CDC is underreporting the cases or the cases associated with the vaccine in terms of side effects and and damage are not, are not being reported properly. I would be very disappointed. I'm not saying that that's happening. I would be very disappointed because nothing, nothing is more beneficial to human health than transparency in everything that, that, that is done. I think a lot of us would be really disappointed because it would be a question of trusting the agencies that we're supposed to trust for our health. So I think you, I think you raise a really good point. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people would feel that way, very disappointed if it, if it ever came out definitively one way or the other. Yes, exactly. I can tell you, uh, Kelly and Alicia, um, and 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 Eric, when he hears this, um, that I trust, and I'm not going to say who I don't trust, but I trust the current head of the CDC, the, the director. Um, I trust because it's, it's an authority in infectious diseases. It's a trusted voice in infectious diseases before she became the CDC director, before she became the CDC director. Um, a scientist, a doctor, a trusted voice, and it's a woman. I really like women in positions of leadership because women, in my view, and I have that example in my wife and my stepdaughter, my sisters, my own mother, they, all, they, they, they tend to have more uh, equilibrium in, in their views. Um, and so I trust the current CDC director. So I think that whatever she has her hands on in making sure that the entity, the agency is, 
is is transparent i think she's 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 doing that right now absolutely and do you feel that it is fair for the cdc the nih uh governments around um, America, employers, airlines, do you think it's fair for them to mandate the vaccine? That's a tough call, right? Um, It was done with the flu vaccines. I don't know if you guys are aware that hospitals made it mandatory to get the flu vaccine. And if you didn't get the flu vaccine, you couldn't practice. You couldn't practice. So, um, they 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 have the records uh, who gets the vaccine and if and who doesn't and if you get the vaccine outside the hospital system you had to prove that you had been vaccinated um i think that ideally you didn't have to resource to that to make it mandatory is there in the ideal world but in the ideal world also will require that those who refuse to be vaccinated be responsible with other people. Right. So if you if you take this stand, I'm not going to take something that not only protects me, but also protects others who are more vulnerable than me, then you should do something to prevent that others get vaccinated. So what I don't understand is if you say, no, I will not get vaccinated and I have my reasons and we have to respect that. But at the same time, I'm not going to mask. I'm not going to keep physical distances. I'm gonna attend crowds and, and 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 you know parties and all that. That part I don't understand because there are people who walk next to us who are immunocompromised, who cannot be uh, protected because their own immune systems don't work, who pay the price because of these. So there must be some way to take this collective knowledge that we have uh, achieved through science and hard work that includes basic public health measures that include vaccines so that everyone brings that tiny piece to, to, to the solution. Because I hope that we all agree, even if we disagree in, in, in how science and, and what data we believe and what data we don't believe, I hope that we don't all agree that the ultimate goal is the greater good. The ultimate goal is to have people not dying in the hospital from COVID. Not dying in the hospital from the vaccines. I hope that we at least agree on that. So that part I don't understand, like, you know, let's not make vaccines mandatory, but then people who doesn't get vaccinated will not wear the mask and will not keep the physical distance. Yes, we are very passionate about protecting the immunocompromised community because that seems to be one way that toxic mold exposure makes people very sick, is it seems to induce a type of chemically induced aids from the from the trichotheses that some toxic molds are able to produce and so a great large percentage of the population is exposed to mold via water damage building some estimates say 98% of people with basements have leaked you know the the stats on water damage are quite shocking and when you look at how water damage is fixed it's actually not usually done in a way that removes water damage materials or potential growth. And so we have found and begun to suspect just in the base that we work with, with mold injured people, is that when you have your immune system somewhat compromised from trichothecine exposure or toxic mold exposure, 
you are a lot more vulnerable for a virus or another pathogen to kind of take over and run its full expression without your immune system keeping in a check. And one of the things that we found very interesting with, so you, you may not know the history of Eric Johnson. He's a prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome, meaning he was the original patient that the doctors worked with and tested when the CDC coined chronic fatigue syndrome in the late 80s when a Chinese flu came through the Lake Tahoe area. And a lot of the markers that were found were like failed immunity. And so that's when chronic fatigue syndrome was coined. We're actually seeing a lot of our base, our, our mold exposed population, they are seemingly already in the chronic fatigue syndrome category from having their exposure. But it's raised the question, since long COVID seems to be presenting with all of the same symptoms as chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, is this what viruses do or pathogens do in a patient with lowered immunity? And is exposure to fungi and water damage and trichothecine producing molds part of that bigger picture? And we don't, we do not expect you to answer that question, Dr. Montoya. Not even the most researched person could answer that question because these details have not been hammered out in any formal research, but it's part of the bigger picture of why we're interested in infectious diseases, why we wanted to talk to you, why we're interested in, in investigating COVID long holers in relation to CFS ME, and also why Eric is, is part of our group as the original prototype for CFS. So I just wanted to put that on your radar as something that we're actually seeing and that there's a history dating back to the early 19, or the late 1980s. And in fact, actually a little bit more, but I'm less versed in the history that goes back quite a bit further. But there seems to be an expression of a pathogen or a virus entering the system and then the immune system being sedated by something. And then that pathogen is able to express itself in a way in which it wouldn't normally be able to express itself if the patient had a fully functioning immune system. One, I, 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 I thank you for saying that, Kelly, and I, I respect Eric and I have met him, a uh, uh, very smart uh, person and, um, and with lots of really good reasoning in, in, in many ways. Um, and, and by the way, so, so, so two things, in, in my experience of seeing and treating more than a thousand patients with CFS, so I have had that, I would call privilege, and, and I don't have CFS and I don't have any family member, God forbid, with CFS. I just got into because I just saw the suffering in, in, in these patients. In, in my seeing this thousand or more patients with CFS, I have seen clear-cut cases where the CFS worsens when the patients are exposed to these houses or places or basements or where the mold is so obvious there. And in fact, in my current practice where I see CFS patients, in some cases, in some cases, I have asked to visit the house. I always go accompany with my wife and then she and I go through the whole house and see the family and the smell, the mold is so heavy, so obvious. And so we have made recommendations, you know, practical recommendations to avoid this exposure. So 
from the observation standpoint, and as you mentioned, you need to substantiate your, your observations with hardcore data, blood data, immune responses data. I have seen what most can do to CFS and they make it worse. Separate from that, I just wanna tell you that, uh, Kelly, that you, your point of uh, low immunity allowing you know, pathogens to do more, um, there is a little of a added view to that the immune system. So we used to see the immune system as a black and white, either the person had low immunity or it had higher hyperimmunity and both cause disease. Either if you have low immune system or a hyperimmune system, you suffer from both. But the current view is that you can have both situations in the same person. So you will have one part of your immune system low and another part of the immune system overreacting. And that in fact is how is COVID being viewed now where what we call the natural innate immunity is low. And so that allows more virus to come in, but you have what we call the adaptive immunity, which is B cells and T cells overreacting to that entry of the pathogen that came in higher amounts because this other pass was low. So it is possible to have in the same individual, a lower immunity in one area and a hyper immunity that causes damage in the other area. And that's how I view currently CFS where areas like natural killer cells have been consistently demonstrated to be either low in number or low in function and perhaps other areas of natural immunity like toll light receptors are defected. And that allows the CFS patients to get pathogens with more complacency, if you will. But then you have the adaptive immunity, B cells, T cells, really getting angry against this. And that could include mold, could include viruses, could include allergens. And that perpetuates that change where the patients are suffering from a hyperactive immune system but also a low side that allow things to come in in the first place. One thing that comes to mind as I'm hearing you describe this is something that I've learned from Eric about the complement immune system. And I know that the complement immune system bridges innate and adaptive immunity. And I'm wondering, since we're seeing a dysfunction between the two types of immunities, as you've just described, could what we're seeing with COVID or with this or with CFS actually be CARPA? Could this have, could the complement immune system be indicated here? Definitely something that um, needs to be explored and it's been explored in some studies because it's, it's the, there is a crosstalk. There is a, you know, exchange of information between innate and an adaptive that is happening all the time and complement is exactly in that, in that intermediate stage. Um, and in the natural immunity, we also have uh, macrophages, dendritic cells, uh, toll-like receptors, uh, complement. So all these things are in the natural immunity and the natural immunity reacts fast in hours, whereas the adaptive immunity is slower, but it's more precise and it takes days to weeks to uh, develop and evolve. So the way I see now uh, CFS is that the patients have both a, a lower ability to fight infections with their innate immunity, but they have this adaptive immunity in an overdrive. 
And in, in, in what I see is that is the overdrive what is responsible of the patient's uh, symptoms. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Bupesh Presti's work has indicated that there's a subset of HHV6 alpha where the mitochondrial fragmentation is a distinct feature of the original chronic fatigue syndrome subset, which is in contrast to the Epstein-Barr virus syndrome, which was a different reflection of that lowered immunity that Dr. Montoya is talking about. Right, so there are different mechanisms. I still believe that there is a bottleneck, like there is a common denominator, there is a common pathogenic pathway uh, with different origins. So how there is no question that there have been studies proving that someone's life becomes devastated, ruined, because they had a severe Epstein-Barr virus infections and their illness began there. And the same applies to a bacteria like Brucella, parasite like Giardia, another virus like human herpes virus six, human herpes simplex one, herpes simplex two, a, a fungus like valley fever, like coccidioidomycosis. So in, in, the, in the infectious diseases world, it is well known that you have an infection and your, your illness begins there. And the world is now witnessing this with COVID, with SARS-CoV-2, where the patients have completely normal lives, they get the COVID and that's when they begin their, their illness. Now, how do we go from HSV-6 mitochondrial dysregulation or Epstein-Barr virus that primarily is in the lymph nodes? HSV-6 is primarily in monocytes, not so much in the lymph nodes, whereas EBV is primarily in the lymph nodes. Uh, how do we go from these different places to that? What I believe is a common pathway where they all have similar symptoms and they have a dysregulated immune system is not understood. And there are no data, as far as I know, demonstrating what happens between the initial event and the common pathway that they all uh, are. Well, during the uh, 1985 Lake Tahoe mystery illness, when Dr. Gary Holmes demanded that uh, Dr. Cheney produce healthy controls to contrast his Epstein-Barr virus serology tests against, they found that the so-called healthy controls weren't so healthy after all. All these people who were wandering around apparently perfectly normal had the same fluctuating uh, inability to control Epstein-Barr virus. And since Lake Tahoe and Incline Village in particular being a very small town, you can walk across it in 20 minutes. It was like a microcosm. Mm. And I was able to ask people um, about any precursor problems they may have had. And what cropped up over and over again was an exposure to sick buildings. This was such an incredibly stark feature for the Tahoe mystery illness that virtually all the clusters occurred in sick buildings. This led me to ask individuals, do you recall ever being exposed to this, this mold in your, in your life? And every person had a story for me. So this led me to the conclusion, and I realized this is just a hypothesis at this point, but it may be that something about the mold is priming people so that they have no symptoms until some opportunistic infection comes along and capitalizes on this precursor type illness. I, I think that that's um, 
uh, a plausible um, mechanism. I think that that's a, a, a viable path. Um, what precipitates the immune system to go into overdrive? Um, and I, I just mentioned before you came in that in my experience of seeing patients with CFS, and I have seen directly, I've been in, directly involved with more than a thousand of them, um, that there are, there is no question in my mind that people with this illness who get exposed to uh, basements, houses, buildings that are unequivocally with mold, where, where, where that, that's not the question, the mold is there, they fall much sicker. They, they become sicker with the, their symptoms when they get exposed to these buildings or to these rooms. There is no question about that part. There is no question. And so to me, it's not impossible to think that in a group of patients with CFS, the mold be the trigger that pushes the person's immune system homeostasis of health to an immune system with a new homeostasis, with a new equilibrium, but in a overdrive, and that's leading to the symptoms. The, the, the thing that I would love to see in research is, is a way to connect the two. What, what can one measure reliably in blood that will say, yes, this is the toxin, the mycotoxin that is either perpetuating the illness, pro prolonging the illness, maintaining the, supporting the illness, perpetuating it, or that it triggered it. And the best way would be to have not just the mycotoxin identify, but have the immune response that is specific for the mycotoxin, what we call host signature, where you have messenger RNA that is specifically reacting to the mycotoxin, or you have cytokines that we know are associated with the mycotoxin and, and have both. So as you know, Eric, in infectious diseases and Kelly and Alicia, in infectious diseases, the presence of the pathogen is not enough to cause the disease. You have to have an immune response to the pathogen to cause the disease. Uh, that explains we have billions, if not trillions of bacteria in our gut and we don't get sick from them um, because when we are healthy, they are there and we are not, so the immune system ignores them. So for, for, the, for the mycotoxin world, for the mold world, my suggestion would be if research could be done to not only identify the mycotoxins in blood or in tissue, but also to have to identify the immune response that is the signature that the immune system is angry with the presence of those molds and those toxins in the body, and that's driving the illness. It's uh, notable that all the doctors who were involved in the original Tahoe Truckee incident have come to believe in mold illness. Dr. Cheney um, in 2002, Dr. Peterson in about, uh, about the same time period, and even the doctors who initially denied it, the uh, ones at Tahoe Forest Hospital, who were the first to encounter the Truckee teacher cluster, have all later written that they believe that mold was a factor, a trigger for this, this chronic malady. And yet this didn't translate into the chronic proteasome research because once they decided that they were primarily looking for a virus, nobody's ever really come back to revisit this circumstance. But if we analyze this incident, look at uh, the documentation that we do have, I believe that a case can be made that at least calls for further research in this direction. Yeah. 
So that, uh, that's the reason for my repeated trips to Stanford is to try to get uh, researchers to come back to Tahoe and just discuss this yeah. and see if we can work out some kind of deal to look into this factor. Yeah, they, they have a CFS group there. So you could persist in your trips to Stanford and get them involved. Yes, they have a good CFS group there. Yeah. You know, as they've agreed to look into uh, mycotoxins eventually if they get funding, but it hasn't been done yet. Dr. Davis even uh, stated that this is something that nobody's looked into and he hopes to in the future. But in the meantime, if there's anybody out there who wants to find out about the direct connection between toxic mold and the creation of the chronic fatigue syndrome, they can read it in Dr. Shoemaker's books, Mold Warriors and Surviving Mold, or they can simply ask me. Sure. So the um, book, Osler's Web, which is the official book, the most definitive history of chronic fatigue syndrome, explains the uh, Truckee Creek teacher cluster on page 25. And I believe that anybody who's familiar with toxic mold and sees the potential for toxic mold as an immune suppressor looks into this, they, they might be able to discern a, a pattern here that might be worth looking into. And that's really all I'm proposing. No, and, and Eric, as I said, is uh, is viable, and, and and in my humble opinion, uh, as a physician and as an investigator, I, I think that is 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 a path to the illness that ought to be looked at with open with open mind. And as I said, it 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 it, it is. It, I see patients that get clearly. My it's a clinical observation. It's a clinical observation that supports that molds can be involved in making the CFS worse or perpetuate the illness or triggering because whatever makes the illness worse can precipitate the illness. And, and there are other things that can precipitate the illness. I have seen head trauma. I have seen pregnancy, following pregnancy. I have seen um, a surgery, big surgical procedures, uh, obviously infection. And I think I have had also patients since I was not sick until I got to this house that had this mold and that's when my illness began. So there is no question about that. I think the challenge is how to scientifically connect, not just for mold, Eric, because we, we see the observation of somebody coming with herpes, horrible herpes one infection. And I have patients that every time that the herpes outbreak comes out, the illness gets worse. And when I suppress that patient with antivirals, one to five years later, they go back to normal. I have seen it firsthand experience. So the same way that these triggers does it, mold, I have seen the clinical observation. And I'm not saying for mold, we need scientific evidence, but by the other triggers, we don't know. For all of them, we need to connect the infection, the molds, the toxins, with the illness. And one th way I'm proposing out there is you have to detect the, the presence of the toxin or the infection or the mold, and then have the, the, the abnormal immune response. That's the ideal way that we should be diagnosing in the infectious diseases world, not just the presence of the pathogen, but the abnormal uh, immune response. Now, big kudos to you, Eric, for persisting on this. And I think that you will get to see one day your point of view uh, validated. Oh, thank you. Well, Dr. Davis's nanoneedle project is pretty exciting because it shows the presence of a mitochondrial deficiency uh, directly in the blood. 
But the most exciting work I've seen recently is Dr. Bupesh Presti showing mitochondrial fragmentation. And it seems that if you can demonstrate an alteration in the mitochondria simply by uh, spectroscopic analysis, that this might even be a more convenient, a more direct test. Uh, have you looked into this? The data is fascinating and is connecting the possible mechanism of the disease to one of my favorite pathogens, human herpes virus 6. And also, uh, you know, it just uh, supports that when I did this randomized, double blind, placebo control, clinical trial of how patients getting placebo and half getting valgancyclovir, which is a drug that is active against herpes 6, patients in the drug side, they got better. They got cognitively better than the placebo. And it was double blind. It was double blind. So the patients didn't know they were getting valsite. The doctors, we didn't know that they were getting the drug. And those on the drug, when we broke the code later, were more likely to have told us that they were getting better. So if, if Dr. Prushti's data holds, and, and I don't see why it will not hold, he's a serious researcher on the effects of the her human herpes virus 6 and evil of mitochondrial fragmentation, um, it supports that perhaps inhibiting the replication of this human herpes virus with active drugs have a role in, in, in the management of chronic fatigue syndrome. I do not subscribe, and this is maybe shocking to you, Alicia and Kelly and Eric, I do not subscribe to the view that CFS does not have treatment that is not treatable. I do not subscribe to that because I have had firsthand experience with patients dramatically improving with anti-inflammatory drugs and suppressing the herpes uh, viruses. Um, it doesn't mean that the herpes virus caused the disease to begin with. But being the CFS, an inflammatory illness, the treatment of inflammation is giving drugs to decrease inflammation. And that's how I am viewing my treatments. And that's, that's how I've been successful in treating a good number uh, of patients. But maybe this could be a topic of a future conversation. Well, I remember... Um when I was done at Stanford, I was able to relate an interesting story to you that I was at the 2009 IACFS ME conference, standing next to Dr. Peterson, Dr. Daniel Peterson and Dr. Rowe, and they had the most amazing conversation that I've ever heard. Dr. Uh, Peterson told Dr. Rowe that he had a patient with classic uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, and that means HHV6-alpha, who had surgical stenosis, and this completely resolved his chronic fatigue syndrome, completely, as in cured. And Dr. Rowe was shocked by this. He goes, classic chronic fatigue syndrome? Are you sure? And Dr. Peterson said, yes, absolutely. It was HHV6. It was classic CFS. And now he is, for all intents and purposes, cured. And this was astounding that somehow releasing the pressure on the nerves was capable of causing this person to go into remission. I remember there was some interest in looking into this at the time, but I haven't heard any follow-up on it. Well, you know, it's that um, there are different mechanisms. Again, in my view, the ultimate problem is inflammation that goes unchecked, that, gets, that goes on. And there are different mechanisms for different patients. And 
there is no question that there is a subset of patient with the cervical stenosis, the cranial cervical instability, the CCI. And by the way, Dr. Rode published a paper of three patients not, not that long ago where they clearly have the symptoms. You really have to have the symptoms. You cannot do this in everybody. And also the MRI showing the instability. You have to have objective proof that the instability is there. And he published the three patients where they did the proper surgery by the proper neurosurgeon. It has to be everything appropriate. And they got, they got cured. And, and I can think about several possible explanations why releasing this compression here will lead to, um, to, to, to complete remission. But, but, but it doesn't apply to everybody. I have many, the most CFS patients don't have those symptoms, but the ones that have it, it's really worthwhile to explore that possibility, get the right studies, and if the right studies point to it, and you have a appropriate neurosurgeon that specializes in that area, then explore surgical possibility, but it doesn't apply to everyone. Yeah, this is a procedure that I would definitely approach with caution, exactly. but it, it does seem to offer a valuable clue into the etiology of this, this disease. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 to, to me, I just gonna say what I'm going through with the, um, the um, there are a few autopsies that have been done in CFS patients. Uh, out of the few autopsies, there is uh, one that, that shows ganglionitis. So these are these nerve cells that are along the spine that go from the upper neck all the way to the lower back. So we have ganglia, ganglions, and those are the cells where the peripheral nerves are born and they give sensation and they give um, autonomic responses. Um, so I have always wondered if in these patients, what happened is that it's compressing those ganglia that are releasing inflammation and that's why they improve. The other possibility is that the spinal fluid is compromised and proteins are getting into the spinal fluid producing inflammation. Um, but, but I use it in my practice. In my practice, if I see a patient with CFS that is not responding to the treatments that I normally uh, 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 recommend and they have the next symptoms, I try to veer all the efforts into see if CCI is present then the proper neurological studies, then a neurosurgeon that I know, that I trust, and then the whole thing is applied. There are several things. The world of CFS is so rich in, in clinical observations. It's so, if physicians were to just believe the patients, they would realize all the great medic medicine that they are missing because they have real symptoms and it's a challenge to understand where those symptoms are and just trying to understand them is, is, is fascinating. The, the practice of seeing patients with CFS is a fascinating one because you see mechanisms of disease that are not classified in the conventional boxes. They fall out of those boxes. And sadly, the reaction has been, if you don't fall into any of those boxes, you are crazy or you just made them up when in reality they correspond to very specific mechanisms. And when you understand them, it's easier to treat them, it's easier to follow them. Uh, as an example, one of my CFS patients, a young woman had had the CFS for decades, nothing was improving, had just minor improvements until I pay attention to her abdominal pain. 
and her abdominal pain was every time that she ate and it was consistent and she was not gaining weight. And I suspected that the diaphragm was compressing her, one of her arteries coming out of the aorta going to her bowel. We did a study, it was confirmed, did the surgery and the abdominal pain now is gone and now she's improving. So th there are many things that the CFS patients hold and sadly medicine sees them uh, some, as a noise. I don't want to see them so much pain time, but there is so much richness that they will bring to us as curious physicians and investigators that we are the ones losing. You know, the, the whole world thinks that by not seeing patients, we gain because then don't have those problematic patients. In my view, the whole world of medicine is missing by not seeing CFS patients and, and, and addressing the critical scientific questions that come out of that. Now, thank you very much for that. They should view this as an incredible mystery, a puzzle to be solved. It is, Eric. It is uh, it's something that to any good doctor and an and investigator, it should be a source of like, let's solve it. Let's, let's work on it. Yeah, there's one final question that I have, and that is at the Emerge Conference, uh, Professor Leighton Barden of Australia uh, announced that he's a uh, magnetic resonance imaging specialist, does the most... Um, intense work with the highest sophisticated degree of uh, Tesla technology. And he said that his observations sh show that rather than the demyelination that we expected, he was actually seeing a thickening of the myelin sheath in chronic fatigue syndrome patients, the exact opposite of what we'd assumed for all these years. Have you heard any further word on this? That's fascinating, Eric. I, I don't know specifically that that finding, but I'm uh, gonna uh, look at it. But what what I can tell you is that several investigators are pointing to the brain as a site of disease. Either it started there, or 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 it got there later. Uh, but the work by Professor Watanabe in Japan showed that the limbic system area was inflamed, was involved. Uh, the work of Jared Younger, at University of Alabama show that the brains of CFS patients have higher temperature and produce more metabolites uh, related to inflammation. The work by this guy, Jose Montoya, when he was at Stanford, showed that there, there is an area of the brain, the, the right arcuate fasciculus, that is thicker. So that goes along like with the myelin. And then there is work that is being done at Stanford, where we were showing that also there was neuroinflammation in the limbic uh, system areas. So I will not be surprised, Eric, if, um, if someone shows something that is counterintuitive, that, that is not what we expected. And that's where transparency to data has to come in place. Um, and so I will not be surprised if this is this finding holds. Um, and we just have to apply the right tools, tools that have not been applied before, but also be open-minded to, to the findings. I think that, by the way, I, I read from cover to cover the Osler web from Hillary, by Hillary Johnson. I read that book from cover to cover and I have footnotes and I have side notes. And one day it's in, it's in the back of in my, in my, in my, in my uh, library here at home. And when, when you mentioned the book, I was tempted to just run and get it and show it to you that I have read it. 
but it's a Bible for me because it gave me the perspective that the CFS has suffered from ignorance by leading agencies. It has suffered from by neglect from medical societies, uh, physicians. Um, but the other part that it, is a bit fair is that the technology that was available back in those days, yes, there was deafness and blindness by those who were trying to solve the mystery in many ways, like Hillary shows, but also there were technological tools that were not available back then that we have now that can allow us to now see what CFS in reality is, like this powerful, sophisticated MRI technology that you just mentioned. Or when I did my study on the cytokines, in the cytokine study, I was able to measure 51 cytokines in each individual times 600 people, like 200 with the illness, 400 healthy. And we saw something that no, 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 nowhere has ever been seen. We saw that the cytokines, the higher they were, the more symptoms patients had, suggesting that inflammation via cytokines was part of the illness. So I think, Eric, what is needed, what is really needed to solve this disease right now, I, I suggest is $5 billion over a five-year period, $1 billion a year, renewable for another $5 billion, another five years, where groups can be funded they don't have to worry about you know, writing grants and having to produce, but just produce real data where they can, where they can bring young investigators that are excited about this, who has all these amazing tools that will allow us to see finally what this illness is. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Eric. So Alicia, do you have any more? Yeah, uh, Dr. Montoya, thank you so much again. And you know, our podcast is uh, exposing mold and we're, we've all been mold injured severely. And we're just extremely, extremely mesmerized and interested in looking further into mold and how it affects health. Uh, you know, the who has called it the, the great masquerader. Um, I've been digging through the literature and finding so much information on mold causing uh, a type three Alzheimer's, uh, Dr. Burdezen's work you know, causing traumatic brain injury, cancer. It's just kind of like the, the, the mechanism that just drops the immune system, it seems, to allow the floodgates of all these issues to happen. And uh, the current data that we see online now is that 50% of buildings are moldy. And I, I would almost assume because of climate change, that's even higher. And us as a human species, currently, we spend the majority of our time indoors. And also quarantining. I mean, we all had to stay indoors for about a year because everyone was frightened by COVID. We didn't know the ramifications, what was going to happen. So I'm just really interested in the connection between the severity of COVID, uh, COVID long haul, um, into this fact of people staying indoors because of quarantining. And I just wanted to know, is there any research that um, is planned to look into this? Is this something that you would be interested in looking into? Um, because this is something that we're very interested in and we love to help. We, we just want to know the facts. We want to know the information. And we don't just want to rely on the scientific data that exists now because it is limited. Uh, the funding for mold research is very limited also at this point in time. 
And so again, we're just extremely interested in that. And do you foresee that being studied going forth? Or do you see the opportunity for funds to be diverted to something like that in the future? Well, there is no question that chronic illnesses, and I uh, feel sorry for, 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 for you if you if you are in that group of patients who are uh, that sick. I think that um, there is no question that this illness or patients with these symptoms that go on for years deserve way better than what they have been given before. And not only in terms of uh, medical care per se, but also home care, which is another hugely neglected area because in societies like in the US, if you don't have a job, you don't have health insurance, how do you work if you are sick and, and chronically ill and you don't have a cancer and you don't have a, a heart you know, disease or a stroke? And so the CFS patients cannot be in a worse situation. So when I said a billion dollars a year, maybe it's short, you know, the US was able to spend billions of dollars to get this vaccine and, and that was the right thing to do. So the money can be brought from somewhere. Congress cannot allocate that money, but billions of dollars are needed to help patients to have their medical care, their home care and research to understand the illness. There is no question about it. And, and that will help to eventually lead to, to treatments. The one point that I would make sure is on the table, at least from my point of view, is that you need to be transparent about the data because if you go biased to say is HSV6 only or is mold only or is Lyme disease only, you could, it's my view, you could hurt, you could hurt the data. You have to be open-minded to other factors um, and, and, and other triggers. Yes, mold needs to be investigated. Lyme disease needs to be investigated. Human herpes 6 needs to be investigated. But if we just go with, it has to be proven, my view, you are gonna repeat many of the mistakes of the past. You need to be open-minded, have the right groups doing the right science, and that lead to, to, to answers. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And thank you for pointing that out because science is kind of that way though. They focus in on one thing, you know, and they attribute it that. And so having a more holistic approach is extremely important. And it's extremely important in this climate these days because there is a huge growing subset of people that are chronically ill that are not being assisted, kind of what you what you talked about. Um, so knowing that there are physicians like you out there that understand the shortcomings of the current medical care system, hopefully that's something that you could even investigate. We, we'd love to talk about that, um, you know, if that's something on your horizon. We're just not finding a lot of physicians like you that have that same mentality. And, and it's so important to provide a platform to physicians like you who are very interested and very open-minded in what's going on and, and having not just tunnel vision, but the uh, uh, a picture of everything that is going on currently that you're seeing with patients. So I just wanna say thank you for that. And again, if we can help you with anything in the future or, you know, provide you with a subset of patients that we work with, that we provide education to, we'd love to, to make that happen because we're just not seeing these types of uh, scientific studies being done these days. And we desperately need that 
because that's what doctors base their care plans upon, right? If the data doesn't exist, then they feel like these, these things don't exist. These illnesses, these chronic diseases don't exist. And that's why they judge people and say, oh, it's in your mind because it doesn't exist in the, in the literature. So we need to bring this information to the literature so that way doctors can find it and use it and hopefully help patients instead of closing the door on them and just sending them off with the Xanax. You know what I mean? So thank you so much for that, Dr. Montoya. Thank you, Alicia, Kelly, and yeah. Eric. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, I, I still remain hopeful even I sounded negative of what has CFS been treated and, and what has been done to, to the patients. I have said it before, I, I dream with medical societies one day apologizing to, to the patient for what was done to them. Uh, too much suffering was caused by, by the neglect and by the humiliation that the patients were subjected uh, to. Um, but I still remain hopeful that, that science and technology and groups like Dr. Ian Lipkin in, in, in Columbia, Dr. Davis at Stanford, and many other uh, academic centers that, that things will be clear. It, it, the patients will be seen and the illness will be seen. What causes the illness will be seen. Once you see the illness, Sadly, it will be easier for our colleagues to see to see the patients. And I say sadly because I wish my colleagues would have seen the patients before they, they see what, what causes the illness. But I enjoyed this conversation and thank you for having me here. Yeah, thank you so much. And I hope that you would be willing to uh, come on another conversation in the future or on a panel discussion because we're very open-minded to everyone's views and we want to provide that platform to um, the experts, because like you said, there's so many people struggling, not knowing what to do because there's really no one or very limited subset of people that can actually help them. Thank you so much everyone for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Jose Montoya. Um, he is extremely knowledgeable in ME-CFS research, um, currently an infectious disease doctor. We are just very grateful for the conversation that we had today. Please like, share, comment, subscribe to our content. Also rate our podcast. Our podcast is hosted on every single podcasting site. So feel free to check that out. Also, please go ahead and check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast running. Thank you again, and we'll see you guys next time.